All right, I think we'll get going. Hopefully everyone's had a chance to grab a beer. I know we have. Uh, so we know it's the end of the day, so thank you everyone. Keep it lively, exciting, and get everyone ready for the evening. So we're here to talk about building great products. And uh, what's really exciting about this panel is we have people from you know, different steps throughout the value chain and sort of different parts of where a consumer experiences music and how they interact. And so I think what would be great first is if each of you could say who you are, where you're from, and really succinctly what you do and what your company does. So we'll start here to my right. All right. My name is Donnie Dinch and uh, started a company called Will Call. And we sell last minute tickets to live shows, currently only in SF. So I imagine we're without a doubt the smallest company up here, but moving at a pretty fast pace, so. Awesome, I'm Sam Valenti. I have a couple companies. One's called Ghostly, which is a music uh, and media company. So I'm more of a record label publisher. And a new company called Drip FM, which I co-founded, and it's a music subscription platform for labels. What's up? Michael Serta with Vivo. I head product and technology, and um, we essentially take music videos and make them available in their best quality form, of course, on uh, the internet, iOS, Android, Xbox, and wherever else we can find. My name is Josh Builder, and I'm the CTO of a company called The Orchard, and we are the largest independent digital distributor. And outside of distributing digital content to retailers, we build a whole suite of diverse products and tools and, and services for our clients, which are record labels and, and artists. So, you know, when you look at this and look at the group's composition, we have everything from the label to distribution to consumer engagement to live music. And I'd be interested when looking at this ecosystem, how do you see yourselves working together? And when we have this sort of self-sustaining ecosystem and opportunities for cooperation, how do you see that evolving from a product perspective and what opportunities do you see? Sure. At The Orchard, we spend a lot of time thinking about like what distribution is and what it means. And, and, and really, it's, you know, we, we view it as a, uh, it's being in the middle. And it's being in the middle of all of, of, all of the things you'll hear, hear about today. And it's how can we be a better, more expansive middle, whether it's distributing content, distributing your social media presence, working with, with sites like Vivo. You know, and what, what can we do to continually widen that and make the complicated problems uh, simpler for our, for our clients? Yeah, I mean, I, actually, we were sitting talking about how we all work together, and I realized that one of our artists on my label is on Will Call tomorrow night at the Mezzanine. Count Trues is playing. And I think people are getting comfortable doing what they do really well, and not everybody's trying to be everything. I think it's nice that, um, you know, if I'm going to embed a video, it doesn't have to be something uh, embeddable widget off my site. I'm going to use a, probably a Vivo video or YouTube video, but was uploaded by somebody else, very possibly. And we were just talking about how like, there's a, we should be talking more often because really we're, we're really all trying to achieve the same end and, not, and letting people do what they do really well and then bringing that together is, is a better way than trying to be everything to everybody. And so you have artists and you have artists that are both on Vivo with videos, yeah? Right, exactly. All the time, so that's how this works. And we could conceivably work with Will Call to the extent you want to distribute your growth out you know, when you click an artist's name or we could send you a push notification when an artist, when there is availability or whatever. Right. And obviously that network effect and that scale could be useful for you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one theme that uh, I think that we're recognizing is that 
And this kind of might come, I have a background in package design, and one thing that became a really big trend in the past few years has been portion control. So you can buy like three Oreos at a time or something. And so I think I look at things like DripFM or even what Will Call is doing and trying to just moderate the amount of information, curate the amount of information that people are seeing. And so I think that that kind of helps. And then on top of that, whenever we do like display an artist or something like Comtrues, um, while it's not in a current build of our app and stuff, but you know, featuring certain videos, I mean, I think that it's, it, we, we definitely should be talking a lot more. And I think uh, as you're looking at sort of how you work together and, and best create that, how do you approach looking at cooperation around new opportunities for revenue within product development and figuring out how do we grow the entire pie and help people understand it's either not zero sum game or that they're just new innovative opportunities for obviously music, which is going through these sort of shifts currently in you know, consumption and revenue models. I think it all, and as it relates to product development in particular, I think it it's, it's essentially the KPI. What, what, is your, what is your goal? What are you trying to, to grow? And in my case, it's video views. So what I try to do is align myself and align the rest of my peers in our company with, with those KPIs. And so long we're all on the same page, then, then we're good. It's the minute that those diverge that you end up in trouble. So, so I think it's really about maximizing video views. And so as we talk about new features and new development, what's going to drive that? As an example, we found that uh, we made a decision last spring to do only Facebook registration. That's kind of a bold decision when we were doing email and Twitter and Google Plus, and there's all these like five different ways to authenticate, right? But what we realized is we can only build one good experience at a time. So uh, let's do that. So we, we would take somebody that would register through Facebook, we would take all the artists that they liked, and we would convert that and ingest that into a playlist. So all of a sudden, within moments of joining Vivo, you've, ha you've had this not only this uh, experience that's personalized with videos that we know you like, but it's also now social, and it's also syndicating into the ticker and so forth. So that's a great way, that was a great example of the company aligning to one end goal. And I think that should be the way all decisions are, are made, is through the KPI and through the data that supports it. I think additionally I'd add that, you know, from our perspective as an, as an enabler of sorts, that we constantly ask ourselves if the product is open and, and we promote openness. I mean, something like, you know, Viva, when we built some of our platforms, didn't exist, right? But does does the product you're building have space, you know, from both from a technical and a design perspective, um, you know, to grow a little bit with the ecosystem as it evolves and take on new partners? Right, and I would probably add to that, that as we build as we build our product specifically for consumers, the goal is, you know, the goal is to get to pe get people to see go to see more shows, and we do that by coming up with a certain set of assumptions, and we want to make sure that every decision we make from a pro product perspective fulfills those assumptions, and so. Um, in the same way that your KPI is, you know, more views. For us, when we want to get more people in the seats, we know that they don't like to have a lot of information or it needs to be quick and, you know, the purchase process needs to be incredibly simple. And so that kind of helps drive our product as well. One thing we did that you should do, I think, is, is um, <laughs> on the iOS app, is, is what we've done is we, we look at the music library. So we know about all the 300 artists that you that you already like, right. and we build playlists around that. You could do that and do a related artists for acts on the local level that I will like, right? Because right? I looked at your app and I loved it. I just didn't know any of the acts. But if but if you told me that they were like some other act that I do like, right? I'm I'm all over it, right? Absolutely. So as you're working on product development, you know you sort of talked about views and different metrics are important. What are those KPIs that you each use? And how do you incorporate that into your product development process to make sure you're striking the appropriate balance between sort of data-driven decision-making with sort of intuition and sort of standard, you know, notions of product design? 
I can take a crack at that. So we, when we launch a new product line or, or, or enhance an existing one, and, and we obviously take metrics back from, from how our user base labels and, and artists use that, that product. And you know, for us, it's really with any new launch or any new piece of promotion or any new feature, we see this big spike, right? Because we go out there and we cause it to happen. And then it goes down and it settles on a level of normal usage. And at that point, we go back and we look at our product and we, pro we find that, you know, 20% of the product is actually getting 80% of the use, and, and what are those those features that are really being used and are sticky after we sort of force them in someone's face? And a lot of times we go back and we make the product more about those, and we sort of you know begin a little fat trimming exercise. And obviously it's not the most efficient way to do it, but you know, we take our best guess at first, but we end up going back and really refining um, you know, over the course of some time, using that that data and those KPIs and, and, and stuff like that to do yeah, it's that. It's all product development is iterative, right? And building a product never ends; it's ongoing, right? It's got to open it up and let it breathe a little bit, right? And that's that's the, that's the point. It's never like just build it, execute it. It's on the shelf and done because that doesn't really sustain. Um, so, so I think it's, but it's it's both an art and a science because while I love to do data driven stuff. It, it's hard because sometimes you can get caught into data-driven decisions, and if you wait for too much data to make a decision, you're not gonna make it fast enough, right. so it's not gonna matter to enough people, right? So in the case of the Facebook registration thing I, I gave earlier, um, that that took a little bit of cojones along with the data, right, as well. So you had to really step up. So what we saw at a, as a result was was a 5X to our registered users. And of those registered users, they wrote, they, or they wrote, they viewed like 8X more videos than those that weren't registered yielding yet another KPI. Yeah, so, we, I think, I think we uh, err on the side of, um, everyone wants to check the box, right? Like, oh, do you have this? Do you have this app? Are you doing mobile? Are, you know, and, and having all sorts of integrations makes sense uh, on paper. You're like, oh, well, we can, yeah. anybody can come in through email, whatever. But by limiting the ability to just Facebook and then making it better, it's a much more, um, you made the product more rewarding. So I think it's important not to be sort of pressured into moving the product towards like everybody all the time. I mean, look at Instagram, right? It's like iOS forever and, and until they open Android, but they got it, they nailed it first before they open it up to everybody. And that was kind of a different topic. Yeah. But no, it's really, it's really it's, uh, yeah, it's the deep I mean, versus wide thing. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. these days deep is, and, and what you're doing, it's, you're not going after every artist right now, you're just kind of testing some ideas and with Will Call and I think with Drip, we're just going after, uh, we're not going after, but we're talking to, just labels of a certain style or a certain kind. Um, labels with fans, not genre kind. Labels with uh, a brand and a history. And I think we learn a lot from those relationships because they're a little deeper as opposed to trying to have every label or every artist, which isn't going to happen. You know, we don't, we're not built to do that. Right. I, I would add to, we, I mean, we focus on trying to build a product for a very, like, I mean, we're at an early stage. And our focus is on trying to build a great product for 10,000 people. If we can get 10,000 people to like this, then we're doing something right, and we can use data from that to extrapolate into other medium and other type of genre and stuff. All good products, I think, start. I mean, Facebook was for college. SoundCloud was for electronic musicians, arguably. I think people want to get big so fast that they forget that all great things start with a dedicated base that really gives a shit about the product. You know? right. Is there so, a swear jar? 
do I do I have to give a dollar to somebody? <laughs> Shot. No, I think yeah. Everyone, Not here. Everyone can do a drink uh, whenever they swear, and I think we'll just find ourselves drinking more as the panel goes on. But uh, we we've talked about sort of what uh, can happen in terms of best leveraging data and testing frameworks and how you do that. And I think what would be interesting, I can say from personal experience, it's been uh, a problem constantly dealing with on the product side. And I should have said I work for Spin. That's where I'm from. Hi, I didn't introduce myself. Uh, but one of the problems I'm dealing with is from a product development workflow, how do you deal with all of the stakeholders that are unique in the music experience? So for me, it's editorial, and how do you balance that? And I'd be curious for you, what are some of the methodologies you've developed for best incorporating techniques for creating these great products? How are you building? How are you scaling effectively and working with your teams uh, to manage the agility necessary in the current marketplace with uh, having the structure to actually make sure uh, you know, things are actually getting done? Okay, so when I got to Vivo about a year, just over a year ago, um, I was looking at it in isolation from the end user perspective, the user of these products and, and services. And what I, and so I rebuilt, I built a new Vivo as a, as a result of that and improved things for them, I think. And what ended up happening was I learned along the way that I have additional customers, not just the people that are viewing videos, but the labels that actually give us the videos to their license us the videos that's a big deal uh, the brands that advertise and put ads in in between these videos the frequency at which they're gonna be available um, and all of that so it turns out to be a balancing act at the end of the day so the decision what we've done is we've implemented a, a matrix and it, it sounds more process oriented than it is but it's really just at my desk I have this whiteboard and, and whenever somebody wants something, I usually get an email. I usually get a lot of emails every day and I start to put these things on, on the matrix and that's what yields, it's like we're, we're looking for value, company building value, sustaining value, not just perceived value. We talked about perceived value earlier. Not just perceived value, but for real value. And let's like, it's like, dudes, let's be honest with ourselves. Is this gonna matter? Is this gonna move the needle at all? If it doesn't move the needle, it can't be on the matrix. And another thing that you know we we face with that because we we build such a diverse set of of product lines is balancing between what we know the user wants and what we think the user needs, um, and they are you know we find very often not in conflict but but not not the same thing and and you can't just cut off you know from a feature set standpoint you can't just say you're not going to deliver what you what you know from data and from experience and focus groups and, and stuff like that that the, your users want because it doesn't match with your strategic value or your, your goals but so it's it's a, it's a balancing act and i think um you know f the perceived we, we were t we were talking about perceived value and sometimes you know users want things that that create perceived value you know and, and they don't necessarily move the needle and you know we, we have to give on that sometimes and it's you know it's a, it's a constant discussion Hey, at least you're all talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've talked about sort of, uh, you know, building to the users. I think what's unique about all of you is you have different users that you're beholden to, be it the labels, the promoters, uh, the actual end user, and different types. How do you balance, uh, you know, being able to tell them what is perceived value versus actual value, and then also weighing what goes into the matrix when a label wants something and ours wants something versus what a user wants? Uh, obviously, I think there's an act of reconciliation there, and I imagine that's a difficult judgment to make. The, I'll just quickly, we do it a, a lot. We do it through interface and interface design in terms of using UX to to push people in one direction or the other because we, we can't force people. And, and in our position as a distributor, we're, we're there to service our clients. So, um, But we can make 
you know, subconscious suggestions. I try to go with like, we scratch our own itch kind of thing. I think that's, if you can build for yourself, it's not a self-centered thing, like making yourself happy. It's just as a label, we know what works for us and our artists. And so that's what we put into drip. And we can go confidently to other labels and say, this is what we think will work for you. So I think you can't go wrong if you, we're all fans of music too. So it's like, it's easy to pretend there's, there's some sort of mythical uh, demographic that does things a certain way, but I think we assume a lot about people and really people are very similar. We all want kind of the same um, things, which is to feel like we're part of something that in good quality, feel like we're supporting things we care about. So I, I don't think it's wrong to put yourself in the chair as a user yeah. for your products. I would completely agree. I think that um, we'll call all the founders, the other two and myself have zero entertainment background and we completely built the app based from a consumer perspective this is how we want to go see things it's incredibly difficult right now and we focused on building for people like ourselves that live in urban areas that have you know the flexibility to change plans at the last minute and so um, we basically built this this whole product and have since then kind of it's been a balancing act trying to shoehorn it into an existing industry that's generally not the most flexible and so I think that I kind of equate it to if you have like a huge box in your hand and you're trying to open a door and you like lean up against the wall and then open it and then swing in. It just, it just very like it takes a little bit of finesse and you can't really tell anyone exactly how to do it. But um, yeah, I, I completely agree with kind of work like focusing on yourself if you can. I think what's unique about all the companies up here as well is that you're in the position of balancing not only creating compelling end user experiences uh, you know, for different types of end users, but also in creating platforms that can scale and approaching product design from a platform perspective. It'd be interesting to know sort of what are some of the learnings and insights you've had as approaching designing business and designing a product from a platform perspective. What's, what's the question? Uh, how do you build a platform and make it awesome? Oh, so, so look, <laughs> it, comes, it comes down to intention. What's the goal? What's the problem you're solving? In the case of some of us up here, it's about entertainment, right? That solves the problem because the world's a pretty shitty place sometimes, right? We all need entertainment. So if you could deliver entertainment experiences um, that are foremost personalized to, to a user and that can grow, so maybe you can add this some parts social to it and create sort of loops, viral loops that allow them to come back and enter this experience over and over and over again along with their friends. I think those are fundamentals. I think when, when I, I rebuilt the Vivo platform last, last spring, it was about personalization, social, and continuous play. The combination of those things kind of lifted all of our KPIs, and you know, as, as a result, it's, it's, it's all you know, way better than it, than it, than it, than it used to be. I'd, uh, I'd say from a building a platform, you know, have a vision, build it piece by piece, and don't be afraid to change the vision as you put like a piece in place that completely tells you something else and, and moves you in a, in, a, in a totally different direction, um, both data-wise and, and also instinctually, I think, as you evolve and you, you put another brick in place. Um, I mean, we find everything changes, you know, I think it's the nature of, of the media technology space. It just changes so quickly that to just, you know, build a platform with blind, you know, with, with blinders on is just, it's not the way, and then you end up with a platform. Really, at the you know, at the end of the day, that that works. 
if it's done right. For us, um, it was about you know trying to build a use case that works in a very specific manner, and then learning from that, and then extrapolating. And I think that I totally agree that whatever your vision is, you need to kind of be able to adapt to it. I think, for example, we'll call the first one of the first assumptions we made is that we'd only sell tickets to shows happening this evening, and it was kind of. Uh, idealistic and it, and it worked but then I was super against for the longest time selling things a day in advance and then we did it and then we sold more tickets <laughs> so then it worked <laughs> but, but yeah, I think you have to you have to be able to have that humility that your original assumption or thesis was probably a little bit wrong so we just it, it always is wrong <laughs> so we just touched on uh, personalization and sort of social customization I'm curious for your respective products how do you balance that uh, sort of incorporation of the social graph personalization with the importance of a authoritative you know act of curation uh, and how you develop that independent voice versus allowing someone's taste to flow be it from the songs in their iPhone to uh, someone who knows exactly uh, what's going on in the live music scene in that city and balance curation versus personalization and discovery. We have different, all different places kind of in the taste making sector, mm -hmm. you know? Um, Orchard has to be, you have to be open. Right, yeah, I mean like it's funny, so we, I, I build stuff for Sam. You know, like yeah. Sam builds stuff for music fans. Like it's, it's a totally different, you know, perspective. And then, you know, Viva, it's all, you know, so. I, think it's different. I actually think Drip FM is a great way. Of, you know, great. We're just like, a, just a curator of curators. So we're right. <laughs> building up, and he's, you know, his app is a, in Vivo as well, they're um, places of taste built on other people's tastes. And I think there's a lot of implied taste. With, and obviously editorial is the mm -hmm. greatest example where people respect editorial because it is focused. Like Spin yep. represents, and, all, and a lot of the buzz, you know, what you guys are doing, like Accelerator yep. being my favorite ever magazine. Uh, it, it is about a perspective. And I think if you put yourself in that place, if you are a perspective product, you have to live it. If, you're not, if you have to be open, then that's a different thing. But kind of knowing where you fit in that gradient probably dictates that. Yeah, I would, I would say that Drip is probably, it's an excellent example of like a strong curator like telling you what's cool. <laughs> and some people just really like that, including myself. And I think that, you know, when, the way that we look at uh, social integration for Will Call, we don't, I mean, we don't take into con consideration what you like at all. Um, we tell you that these are the best things that you can do tonight, regardless of who you are. And I think it's kind of an homage to some extent to an older type of like an editorial uh, perspective on things. And I think people kind of appreciate that. We do, however, integrate social by certain things. We let, when users sign up, they can connect with Facebook, and when that happens and they buy a ticket, we send friend purchase notifications to all their other friends that have the app. And that's been a super lucrative way to move a lot of inventory. But as, as far as, it's it just, how do we use, like, we don't want, we don't want to tell you that this show is necessarily cool because 10 of your friends said it's cool. We want to tell you it's cool because it's fucking cool, and then all of your friends will fall into place. Yeah, no, sorry. That's, that's cool. <laughs> so, so we have this kind of a general purpose audience kind of thing we have to deal with a little bit. So, so we, we do a programmatic approach to playlisting, video playlists and stuff. So if you go to the Vivo homepage on any of the apps or the web, you'll see things that are programmed each day and they rotate through. There's like a, uh, it's a long homepage you can scroll through and so forth. It's kind of like a carousel effect. But then once you, re and, and, so, and so the good news is somebody that just lands in through, from YouTube, coming from YouTube or something, they could just watch a video in a matter of moments and they're watching it, they're in the experience. 
But if they actually sign up and register and do all that, and, and, and so what happens is when they watch these videos, it, it'll show up in their activity feeds that they're watching. So now their friends can see that they're watching and they can latch on and actually watch and link back too. So it's this loop that gets created. Um, so so in, in music is, and it's funny, we also have, we have this thing, and I, th I think, I'm not positive, but I think we were the first to do this, I don't know, but, it, but it, it, the social on and off button. So if I'm gonna watch like a Hall & Oates video, it's not the coolest thing to watch right now, but I'm into Hall & Oates. You know, man eater and all that stuff. So I'll watch that. I'll, I'll, I'll do I'll do the social off thing so nobody sees it. Nobody find it's like it's like porn mode, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, private browsing, you know. So I want that stuff recorded. I want to know, like, in 20 years, like what what I've really been doing. Yeah. You know. Social. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I yeah. For better be, or worse. That might be a very scary uh, time capsule. That you know, so uh, yeah, we. I'm out of my Barbra Streisand phase. <laughs> we all have our places. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a bit about sort of social and how that plays. What are some other technologies that are making your lives easier or exciting that you're finding sort of at that cutting edge are enabling you to make more compelling product? I'll start by saying for us, it's definitely without a doubt push notifications on mobile devices. I think that it's it's there's zero argument to thinking that push notifications aren't the, the next inbox. And I think being able to do those effectively and adding tons of value is incredibly important. And it's something that internally from a product perspective that we focused heavily on to make sure that whenever we send push notifications that they, you know, that we take with respect, you know, when was the last time we sent you one? How often are you receiving these? Do you even really care about these friends? And so I, I, I'm, I'm really excited about those. I think next big sound is interesting, um, and that and just that level of uh, analytics. I don't know what I'm using them for quite yet, but I know that that those indicators are becoming like Wikipedia. I didn't realize how many hits our artist Wikipedia gets. You know how that's really become like your first click for a lot of things. Um, I'm also a big email fan. I know emails like come under fire, but I think email like well relevant email is is super powerful. If it's from a source that you want and it actually gets you somewhere. Uh, it's easy to overlook. Yeah, I, I'd actually say to interject. Uh, on the, you know, for us, it's been on the editorial side. Email is an incredibly important motivator because it enables us to provide that catch-up opportunity. And when looking at news specifically, the element of curation becomes incredibly important from email engagement. So I think it, it is an interesting balance between uh, push notifications as well as email when looking at uh, is it about immediate engagement or sort of being able to play that catch-up. I want uh, the, the on the push notifications thing. I mean, any of like the iOS games that that make you know the in-app purchases. I mean, I we're increasingly fascinated with like ways to get people to take action, right? So the next big sound is an amazing example of data that's you know they're cracking the code, right, in terms of like what's going on. And so, what are the ways that people get people to take action on things like that? And for us to be able to use those techniques, whether it's all kinds of notifications, alerting our labels about something, and making recommendations or push notification. I mean, that's the stuff that really fascinates me. I'm into HTML5. We, we didn't have a, a mobile web offering when I got to Vivo, and, and, and we had some iOS, Android, we had web. And I started looking at the data and realizing there's a lot of traffic that's trying to get to mobile web, but they're getting to the web and not able to see it. What they kept landing on was this, go get our iOS app or go get our you know Android app. That sucks. So we changed that, built a mobile web app, used HTML5, and as a result, of our web traffic, something like 15% of it is on mobile web. So people are now watching videos instead of landing, getting this landing page that says, go get our app. So we're, we've reduced the, 
the friction in getting people to watching videos. So t uh, touching on the HTML5, how are you balancing, I think we've seen, you know, the incredible potential of responsive design and using HTML5, uh, but balancing that with sort of user expectation around native applications and interactions and also sort of the explosion and proliferation of Android. Uh, how is that impacting what you do day to day and balancing native versus HTML5? I think it's still largely an app world, um, you know, native app world. And so I think over, over time it will, it will begin to shift more. But, but for now, we are doing the right thing by having kind of more resources on, on our apps and, and a little bit less on mobile web. But, um, but it's, it's growing quickly, so it's not something we can't not, you know, take, take real seriously. It, it, for us, it's been a it's been a really hard decision between the native app and and and, and mobile web. And I, I know we were talking about it before about you know Facebook coming out and saying like their big you know, one of their biggest mistakes was spending so much time on on you know not their native apps. And I, I get that, but you know for us it's a matter of and again we still continually go back and forth on on what the right thing to do is. And it's really just a, a perspective on what we think the user wants and if it's you know a singular focus. Um, and taking that landing page and doing things like that, the mobile web is way better. But if you need and you know down the future that you want to curate this deep interaction with your, your you know, on a, on a number of different fronts, I think the native app is unfortunately the way to go. I, w I would agree to that. I think that when, so when Will Call first launched, it was iOS only and primarily because there was only four of us and we had zero Android developers. And then um, we realized that Android was pretty big. We, we always knew it, but we wanted to make sure that people liked it on iOS first. And it was, it was definitely the premier, from our, internally, the premier version of how we expected Will Call to be. And we had a discussion of certain sacrifices that we need to make, need to make in order to get Android users you know, using Will Call. And you know, the biggest things, the most, you know, the more important parts of the of the native app for us or the mobile app were the notifications and being able to have mobile commerce. And so for Android, we were able to execute those using an HTML5 Sencha app, you know, wrapped in PhoneGap. And, you know, it's not the most, it's not the best performing app, but everyone on Android gets the notifications and can make a purchase. And so it, it's, it's a great uh, kind of intermediary step, you know, for now. Yeah, I mean, on, on the responsive design thing, I mean, we've we've been going back and as best we can out outfitting our pages, you know, with responsive design that we think people are going to potentially land on from their mobile device. But that's very different than us than building a mobile app to which we push people into it to achieve a certain objective. So, we've done with the responsive design has become, uh, you know, a, a big piece of the direction we're going just for our sites. Right, so, and I was just saying the other thing I think with. With having mobile web apps and whether you, I mean, in your example, having a native app and then pushing people to that native app, I think that for better or worse, <coughs> it, it, I guess it kind of seems right now that we're at a mercy of the Android or the iOS, the Apple st App Store, uh, and the process to actually install an app. I think if, if it was much easier to install directly from a mobile web page, I think we would opt to do that all the time. But the fact that you need to go to a separate app yeah. and log in and then like punch yourself in the nuts is just terrible. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Well said. So we've talked about you know, how mobile's shaping things in your product development cycle. I'd be interested how location and mobile is influencing what you do and sort of the importance of the rising vector of location data. I'm sort of a bad one to go first, because not really for us. Yeah. It, it's, it's incredibly important for us. Um, <laughs> I guess earlier when I was referring to friend purchase notifications and the way those work, primarily right now we only send 
if, if you and your friends are live in the same city and they're all on will call and you're connected you know, via Facebook, we send notifications to people in your metro area. And I mean, what that does is one, it, it, it helps us you know, the notifications become more applicable and they make, you know, they make more sense for you to get those. And it's, you don't really brag to your friends in Arkansas that don't have anything cool to do that night when you do these notifications. So I, I, think, that, I think that location's incredibly important. Um, out of the gate, uh, we thought we were gonna do significantly more, I guess uh, it was gonna be much more important on a more, more granular level on, in, in the city, but what we found is that, for, I mean, for our product, just general metro area notifications help quite a bit. Anyone else on the location front? Yeah, I mean, so so we've always been in, into location. We have this this feature called Music Maps, which allows you when you're watching videos to look around in your local area and see what are the hot videos being viewed right now. And it's one of those things that, you know, the, the data says n not a gazillion people care about, but it's it's a good use of it while we have it. But it, it, really, what it does is it validates that okay, there's there, that, that that's an ingredient for us that we need to do something more with and we will do something more with hopefully in the next quarter. So we've talked about sort of the KPIs you use internally for product development. I'm interested uh, for each of you in the sort of client services perspective, what are the core metrics that those using your service are asking for, you know, be it the clubs or the promoters that you're integrating with or the, you know, musicians, et cetera, what are uh, those KPIs they're tracking? For us, it's a balancing act between the whole like causation and correlation thing. Our clients definitely want to see the effect of some action in, you know, on their digital activity, um, and are very quick to put a stake in the ground that an event happened and therefore X, Y, and you know, and Y happened after it. And for us, it's it's trying to you know get them to hold back and look at look at the bigger picture. I'm not sure that that directly answers the question, but. You know, really looking at like the next big sound stuff and, and helping them make sense about um, what metrics not to get excited about, you know, not to change their plans about and, and be a little bit, you know, smarter about it. For us, it's really music video views. That's what it comes down to. And the good news is we're all aligned with that. The, the awkward thing from a product standpoint is sometimes you know, the views are inflated by the fact that you just got a really popular One Direction video that millions of people are watching. So everything spikes, everything's up, and then, so that makes it look like the next week when it's kind of a normalized level, that you're like blowing chunks, right? So that's like, that's no good. So what we try and do is, is each week I make it a point to actually report to my peers and to the, actually the whole company. I send out a company-wide email every Friday after a couple of these. And, it, it's, and it's basically, what do we get done this week and what does it all look like? And, and usually when the data is a little bit skewed, the good news is we have a, have a good you know, video premiere to point to. Um, and, when, and when it's not, we blame it on the prior week that had a video premiere to point to. <laughs> I mean, at Ghostly, our KPI is dollars per artist. You know what I mean? Like, that's, what, that's the lifeblood of our business is paying artists and now paying labels with Drip FM, so uh, that's what they want to see, you know. And Orchard yeah. is a big part of that, and uh, yeah, all I, of our partners. Like, I can. We're obviously helping brand our artists and build relationships for them and build their fan bases. But we are the bigger our royalty statements, the more successful I feel that we're doing the right job. So whatever does that is better. Yeah, and it's it's taking all those numbers that that success, you know, that success, which is sales and interactions, and you know, blending it into a picture of like what worked. Like we did all these things together, and they worked, mm -hmm. you know, or they didn't, or yeah. you know. 
Right. So touching on commerce, what exciting opportunities do you see in your respective spaces around new opportunities for monetization, be it concert attendance, physical goods? What are you looking at towards the future to create new uh, revenue opportunities? So for us, obviously, selling tickets is our number one opportunity for revenue. But I think that there's significant more value to be extracted. And I think that for us, it requires a certain amount of transparency and partnerships with other other existing platforms that are either moving inventory or promoting shows. I think that when we look at, you know, we're capable of moving X amount of tickets in a day because we just put, you know, a notification on 10,000 people's phone. Um, I think that's great, but also there's a there's a lot of value in the amount of activity and the general uh, just mind share that we move towards a show. And and I guess for us, it's about you know how do we how do we transparently share that data and get data in return uh, from the other existing partners and use that in order for everyone to have a bigger pot to kind of pull from. Yeah, for for, for Vipo, it's a, it's really how to do more and more interesting and compelling ad experiences. I think and and I think. It's, it's a balance between um, a good quality user experience and a good quality ad experience and how do you, how do you get those to work together. Um, and it's, it's something that, that we wrestle with quite, quite a bit. Um, for example, recently I redesigned our, our video watch page and um, you know, there used to be like a, for those of you in the, that speak ads, uh, there was a 300 by 250 basically on the right hand side and it made us bring the video to be like this size and so we had this right column of stuff and more recently, we were able to widen the video player and bring the ad, make the ad a little bit smaller into a 300 by 60, but then add the 300 by 250 further below the page. So now everybody kind of wins. So now we got the biggest video player in the world and the highest quality video player in the world, of course. Um, but, but now we have the, you have the ad as well, and that recognition is there. So kind of everybody wins. And, and I think that's, that's what we continuously go through. And we think about how long pre-rolls should be, where the, whether the pre-roll should be bef right before the video, right after the video, how many videos in between. So this, these are the kind of knobs that we turn every day. I mean, high level, we, we try to make sure that our clients quickly and intelligently take advantage of any of the you know, ever emerging revenue opportunities, whether it's streaming or, or, or things that are just happening. We want, you know, we want to make sure that our client base is there and represented and, and making the most money they can from those different places. I think you're trying to sell relationship, right? I mean, that's music shouldn't be a should I or should I not buy this album mentality. It's like, am I invested in the, this artist or this label or what have you? So I think that's increasingly we have an online store where we sell products like headphones and and uh, you know desktop objects, things that relate to the ghostly like aesthetic. So for us, it's like well, a one-time purchase is great, but I'd rather have the hearts and minds of the fans that we work with. And I think there's various ways to do that, but once you get away from commoditizing just the unit, and also thinking about the sort of wide spectrum of opportunities, then you have a, a career possibility. You know? And so talking about how that user relationships evolved, uh, what changes have you seen in user expectation recently that's informed what those knobs are you're turning in order to create these new experiences and products? The ability to to quickly understand all of the data that's coming out because it is it is immense and um, it's never stops and to you know be able to uh, there it, 
it wasn't as important as it is right now. I think across the certainly the label community and, and the artist community, the you know the the actionable data has become so much you know come to the forefront recently, and and it's a it's a lot to take in, and for us to be able to quickly synthesize that and turn around some bit of intelligence has emerged as a need that wasn't there, you know, 18, you know, 24 months ago. So I think, uh, you know, looking forwards, uh, as people on the technology side, what do you think that the labels need to be doing to better work effectively like technology companies? We've talked a lot about product development and innovation and, you know, technology decisions, and I don't think these are fundamentally conversations that people necessarily would equate with the labels. And I think for those of you sitting up here dealing with these clients, sort of, how do you feel like the industry needs to shift forward in order to best enable the innovation you need to do? I, th I think it would be great if, if they were able to start to migrate from a material world, like I, I, this is my sign and I own this sign, to an access-based world. I have access to this sign any time of day or night. That, those are very different things. And it's not just them, it's, it's, it's the end user that also is starting to kind of show some signs toward that end. Anyone else on the, the label side or think sort of general advice as you're seeing moving forward or you know, what innovations? I think generally looking beyond the labels, I'd just be sort of curious uh, you know, as you're looking at the precipice of technology innovation, what are the things you're waiting on with bated breath to sort of happen to enable you to do better things, be it at the API level uh, or just in terms of you know, consumer interest, what would sort of help make your lives easier and more exciting? I mean, I think we're, as speaking on the label side, like we're supposed to be taste engines, you know what I mean? We're not distri distribution companies anymore. That's, that, that was what labels meant, was production, manufacturing, distribution, promotion. That work has been dispersed. Artists have great opportunities to self-distribute, and that's awesome, that's democratized. Uh, but labels serve a function um, that I think almost is quasi-management, like building teams around artists, that's a really big part of our job and making sure we have the right partners, whether it's distribution or um, publicity. Labels should think less like squatters and more like uh, like liaisons or like facilitators, you know? So I think once you change that mentality from product to service, it gets a little more compelling, the value of what a label is. Yeah, I agree, and, and I, I'd like to see like a label in that state who's not afraid to pull some levers and, and take some risks and, and see what happens on the other side of this door and, and mess around is, is I think, a, a mentality that needs to be what, you know, better adopted. Alrighty, well, <laughs> I think then we can uh, probably call it a bit early. If no one has any questions, we can stick around and uh, answer anything individually that you might have, so feel free to come on up, and thank you all very much. <laughs>